Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Hi. My guest today is Erica Fye. Now, Erica is a young woman who has lived in northern Uganda for the past eight years. She has endured threats. She has endured severe illness, but she continues to work as a missionary in remote villages. She is a woman with a mission. Her first book was published last year. It is entitled, For the Joy Set Before Us, and she'll be sharing that with us. It's insights into the missionary journey. In her book, Erica brings insights to each of us in dealing with our own loneliness and burnout. So it isn't just strictly for people who want to be missionaries, but just how to deal with these issues that we all go through, no matter where we live or what we do. I believe it's extremely important for us to understand and support the men and women who have given their lives and their security. And we certainly have have been privy to this and the issues around that, or even on the uh, in recent months, you know, on TV, etc. And so we want to hold them up and support them and encourage them. And today, Erica is going to share some of those experiences with us and her book. And I'm excited that she is a guest today. Thank you, Erica, and welcome. Thank you so much, Carol. I'm excited to be here. So tell us, when did you know that you wanted to be a missionary? And what was that whole process? Well, um, when I was eight years old, I told my parents that I wanted to, when I grew up, go to Africa and help people on the other side of the world and be a missionary. I wasn't entirely sure what that meant, but I knew that I had been born with that desire in me. I wanted to help people, and I really had a love for Africa from an early age. Of course, Why do you I, think? Why, why Africa? Was it missionaries in your church or something that triggered that? Or No, that's the funny thing. I, I don't know. I grew up in a, a very urban area uh, in New York. It was a melting pot of a lot of different nationalities and cultures so maybe that had something to do with it okay and so how did your parents react oh they just laughed me off like I was it was just some childish dream you know and they said okay honey that's nice go out and play right (laughs) and so how did you pursue that what happened well I listened to my parents and I forgot all about it Uh, but then as I got older I was serving in high school ministry after I graduated working with youth and going into the inner city and helping people out. And then in 2005, there was a, a church group from from the church I was going to at the time that was that organized a trip to Kenya. 
And as soon as they talked about it at the church, that desire that was in me from the time I was small sort of resurfaced. And mm. I, I just felt this burning desire that I needed to go on this trip. And so from there, I was working full time at a medical group. I, and I was also going to I was taking night classes studying criminal justice uh, in the local college here. So I thought it would be impossible, but I started attending the meetings and seeing what I had to do to go. And I did end up being able to go on that trip to Kenya, and that was in 2005. Really? So when you got there, what happened? Walk us through that. Sure. Well, it sounds cliche and sort of silly, but it's really true. As soon as I stepped off of that plane onto African soil... I just knew that oh, this is where I was born to be in really? in Africa. I just I fell in love. I loved. We worked in an orphanage and we worked with with a remote village that had never even seen outsiders before. Uh, just playing with the kids, blowing bubbles with them. Bubbles. They were shocked. What are these things com- coming out? It was so fun and eye opening. And when I was there, we watched a video, a documentary on what was happening in northern Uganda which I honestly, before that time, I didn't even know where Uganda was. And I certainly had never heard of any any war going on uh, in the north that people my age for a whole generation were were suffering and going through this war and running in fear for their lives. And so I heard about the situation for the first time there in in Kenya. And that actually intrigued you to want to be there or did it put a fear in you? How did you respond? Oh, it it made me passionate. First of all, I was, I felt guilty that I had grown up in America and, you know, we, we have struggles here for sure. But the whole time I was growing up in, in safety, uh, these kids my age were growing up and running in fear for their lives every night. So I felt guilty that I had even felt sorry for myself at all ever before. And secondly, I, I felt passionate that someone had to do something and I, I wanted to help. I wanted to go and save these kids, basically. So I'm assuming your first trip to Kenya was, was quite short, and then you came back with this mission in mind. Is that what happened? Right, that's correct. The The trip to Kenya was only about two weeks. And so how, how did you proceed to um, do what you're doing now, I guess? You know, how, how did you become a missionary per se? Did you have to go back to school or what did you do? Yeah, well, when I came back, at first I thought, well, everyone is going to have an emotional response to this situation going on there. So I didn't want to go somewhere based on emotion. I had to really know that this is where I'm called. This is what I was born to do. And so I took a lot of time just reflecting on it and meditating and praying and also seeking uh, other people's counsel and advice. And when I realized that for sure this is what I'm supposed to do, then I did go to training. I went to Southern California. I went through an organization and I did training out there for about seven months to, to learn how to be on the mission field. Okay. And you went back in what year? In 2007. I was um, I spent a good chunk of time in northern Uganda and also South Sudan. Really? Doing, yeah, doing on the ground training and and seeing how I would like it. I actually went for a month in 2006, and the war was still going on, 
we we were able to interact with a lot of the kids who are running in fear for their lives and and widows, people who are affected by HIV and mm. innocent children who are affected by HIV yes. because because of the situation. It was uh, very grave, but uh, at the same time, the people were just so beautiful and warm and so thankful that someone cared cared exactly like the world was silent carol for 20 years while these people suffered and and no one did anything but uh thankfully there's hope for them and so anyway yeah i went in 2006 for a month and then in 2007 i spent a longer period of time there on the field and also in in doing training so tell us about a day in your life in uganda sure in the morning, um, we, we live in a compound. I lived, for the most of the time I've been out there, I've been a single missionary, and I've lived communally with some guys from South Sudan, a widow and her three children from northern Uganda, really not working with any other Americans for most of the time I've been out there. They they come and go in short, mm-hmm. short-term trips, mostly. Um so we, we wake up, the whole team gathers together for a time of devotion, breakfast, and then uh, normally we would take our bikes because most of the places where we go, it's within riding distance on our bikes. Okay. And we ride out on the on the dirt roads to go to the orphanage or the village where we teach. Uh, then three days a week we have in our own compound literacy training, Bible training, and income generation training for for widows who never got to go to school. Really? Who, yeah, who can't support themselves and their children. So we're trying to give them a way that they can learn to read and write in their own language and they can be self-sustaining, not dependent on NGOs. What happened with the war was they were forced from their land into these mud huts that were literally inches apart. They're an agricultural people, so they weren't able to cultivate the land anymore. The UN and UNICEF and all these other guys came in and they were giving handouts. So they were forced into that welfare mentality, no fault of their own. So now coming out of that, they don't have any skills. They don't have any background in training. And most of the women didn't get a chance to go to school. And so just giving them the opportunity to see that they're not just someone who needs a handout, but God has given them gifts and talents. These people are, they're very intelligent, very brilliant. They just haven't been given the chance, many of them. So giving them different skills, training, and education that they can use to to better their lives and the lives of their children. Now, do you teach strictly adults? So we support children to go to school. We pay school fees uh, for children, and we work with an orphanage that has over 100 kids and some disabled people. There was a lot of disabled people during the war who were just cast out. It's considered a, a curse in that society, and so... Some of them were taken in and cared for by this uh, beautiful woman from New Zealand who's a good friend of mine. Uh, So we help her. We help support the disabled and we support children school fees. But as far as us teaching literacy training, it's a program that's geared for adults. And do you stay at one specific base like a, a camp or do you move in different areas of the country? Well, we're we're based in one spot, and we go out into four different locations each week, four different villages that are in different parts of that district of northern Uganda. We hope to expand even more. Uh, we started some some works also in South Sudan. Like so how how big is the area then that you're covering? Um, 
I would say maybe the size of, you know, I'm very bad with this, um, maybe the size of the tri-state area. Really? Well, that's quite a large area. Yeah. And how many of you, like you go in a group, I'm assuming, right? Well, I, yeah, I work with national people. We just had a couple uh, who was coming for a longer term from the U.S., but I have a team of about five national Ugandans who who work with me full time and then we have some other local pastors and church leaders and things like that that we work with as well so you you must miss it when you're not there so much coming (laughs) coming to America is a culture shock (laughs) and how many years have you been there now eight years and of that eight years how often do you come home or not well that is your home but how often do you come stateside Usually I'll spend a year there and come for a, a month or two to the U.S. I was there the last time, 14 months, and I'm, I've been in the U.S. for two months. So. And you're ready to go back. And you're going back tomorrow, isn't it? I'm actually going back the end of this weekend. And you're excited. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. <laughs> so tell us about, like you, we had mentioned in your in your bio in the beginning, about when you were threatened. How did you handle that? How did you deal with the fear? Um, just walk us through it and tell us, you know, like what happened and how you coped. Sure. Well, there was actually several times, but the, the biggest time was when I was driving a team. We had a a short-term team from the U.S. come. There was about six to eight Americans. I was driving them up from the city into a rural farm where we were going to do some some work with people. And on the road, one of the women had to go to the bathroom. So I I stopped to pull over into a gas station. And a big taxi, which it seats about 16 people, I think. Uh, It's more like a van. Okay. It, It smashed into my side. When I was stopped, they weren't looking where they were going. And um, it, the driver's side is on the right side of the car. It smashed into the right side of the car badly. So we pulled over, and this taxi pulled over in front of me. And the next thing I know, there's a mass of people surrounding the vehicle, screaming. They were talking in a language I didn't understand. They were pushing the ve- the vehicle back and forth. Um, so I told everyone to lock their doors and I was getting out of the car. And as I opened it, this man pushed through everyone and said, I'm a police officer. Hand me your keys. I asked him for his badge or his identification and he didn't have anything. He just pushed me and he grabbed the keys and he started running back towards the taxi. He was a taxi driver. And so I, I shut the door behind me and I started chasing this man. Then they tried to push me into the taxi, several people, and um, I was struggling to get away. And meanwhile, back at the our van, people were pushing it back and forth. It was rocking back and forth, and the people in the van were scared. Uh, but thankfully, there was one man with us, and he saw them trying to push me into the taxi, so he got out, and he came to my aid. Hmm. So, so I was able to not get into the taxi. I was fighting as, as hard as I could anyway, and so... The taxi driver took off with some people and just left us there. And like I said, I'm, I'm surrounded by these people and they're screaming at me. I don't understand what they're saying. I came to find out later that in that area, in that culture, if you get in a car accident, it doesn't matter whose fault it is. It's always a foreigner's fault. Oh. 
and you don't stop, you drive to the nearest police station mm. and and sort it out there. And unfortunately, I didn't know that when it when it happened. Right. And I did what I thought was the right thing to do, which was stop and see what was going on. So anyway, uh, they're yelling and screaming and threatening. And uh, in my head, you know, I'm just praying. And I, I was afraid, but I think at the time... I was just thinking about what's the best way to get out of this situation. Right. Um, and thankfully, someone, this one young man walked up after a while, and he said he saw the whole thing, and he knows it wasn't my fault. He started telling the crowd to disperse. Uh, some did, others still stayed, and then the police arrived. When the police arrived, they they took me through the whole thing again. Then they drove me down to their police station, which was this really dank concrete building with a one cell where a guy was chained up to the wall oh my goodness yeah and they took me into this back room and I thought oh boy I'm gonna get arrested in the middle of nowhere in Uganda and that's the end of me you hear stories right 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 right. and they were treating me like a criminal when I first went in there and telling me you know you've done a very bad thing and the more I talked uh thankfully (laughs) <laughs> the guy, there's a lot of corruption, but thankfully the guy wanted a visa to the U.S. When he found mm. out I was an American, then he started acting nice to me. So the one saving grace there was was that he started being nice, asking for my number, telling me he's always wanted to go to America and this and that and the other thing. And thankfully I didn't get arrested. The taxi driver eventually came back with the keys, saying it was my fault. They were telling me I needed to pay an exorbitant amount of money to him and I refused because I knew that I wasn't wrong right even though I was scared I wasn't gonna pay for something that that he did wrong and so anyway it was it was a quite an ordeal eventually someone came to pick up the rest of the team and bring them to the farm and someone else came to pick me up and bring me back down to the city where I had to go through an insurance thing and um, the insurance company they always side with the police. It was totally miraculous in God's favor that they mm. saw the vehicle and they said, you know what, this couldn't have been your fault. There's no way. It was pushed like in and, and out. Right. So it, it had to have been that the guy hit me. And so they wrote that in their paperwork. And that was the last I heard about it because, of course, they're not going to do anything if the guy has to pay. So. so in hindsight, do you think that they probably saw that you were a foreigner and they caused the accident on purpose? That very well could have been. They, I found out later that a lot of the taxi drivers and police are, are in cahoots together, and they mm. make money doing that. So right, right. Probably, yes. So after your adrenaline settled down, then you got nervous, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then I was like, oh, my goodness, what just happened? I can't believe that just happened. I was shocked. <laughs> and anything else you want to share of some other experiences that you had? Well, there was a, a time when I had had malaria. I've had malaria a lot of times, and sometimes it's not so severe. But this one time I had it, they couldn't detect it um, until it was very far advanced. It was severe malaria, pretty much dying. Mm. And it took a long time. So by the time they found it, I was hooked up to an IV and still very weak, but I had to go back up north um to where I live to prepare for a team coming. And so I was disoriented and on the bus to take the bus ride on the terrible bumpy roads about 10 hours north. (coughs) Excuse me. And 
these guys came in and distracted me while these other guys robbed me. Mm. And they, they took my computer bag, which had my passport, my money, my credit cards, and everything in it. And so right after being very sick, then I was I was robbed. And that was one of those times where I kind of shook my head and I said, what, what am I doing here? Right, <laughs> of course. So how did you come to grips with that? It took a little while, um, but I, I had some really good friends. And I would say that a lot of it was helped because I had some good friends say they took me into their house. They let me cry on their shoulder. They cooked me a meal. They helped me. Call, call the U.S. Embassy, get my passport, get another passport and go through that whole process. And what helps me when I'm going through something like that is also journaling, writing, being totally honest about my feelings. You know, as as missionaries, people sometimes you're expected to be a certain way, like you're not expected to to feel as much like things shouldn't affect you you're supposed to be this superhuman fighting on the front lines and that puts a lot of pressure on you if you do go through a traumatic experience or even if you're having a bad day or you're battling loneliness or whatever it may be there's this pressure on you to to not feel and I found that when I allow myself just to feel just to cry, to process the emotions that I'm feeling, to ask for prayer and to get with, you know, a friend, it helps a lot. So, in other words, you have humbled yourself enough to ask for help, which a lot of people, like you said, you're put on a pedestal and that you should be self-sufficient and you shouldn't need help and you realize that you do. And that's a humbling experience, I'm sure. That's very true. Yeah, it is. It's hard to get to that, that point. But you need to. <laughs> yeah, we, and we all we all do, you know, exactly. whatever experiences that we, we go through. So tell us about your book, because like you mentioned, it's not just, you know, like your journey as a missionary, but there is something that you had um, said regarding culture shock and re-entry shock. Is that part of your book? Yes, it is. Um, there, I... When I was coming on to the mission field, there was not any one resource that I could go to to see about culture and some of the things I was going to experience. I don't think I was properly trained enough, and maybe no one ever can be. You know, you never know what you're going to expect until you're in in the throes of it. But culture shock is is a reality because our worldview as Americans is totally different. It's founded upon different principles. The worldview of of Ugandans, it's a survival worldview because of all the war, all the things that they've experienced. Their worldview is how can I survive? How can I get enough to survive today? So they're not able to think of saving for the future or think of something like that until they're able to realize that they can survive. And so that's the reality that they've been thrust into. Mm. So when you go there, we have a totally different foundation and worldview. Regardless of religious background or whatever, as Americans, that's the reality of the situation. So when we go over there, we expect people to think the same way that we do, but they don't. It's not just they speak a different language, they wear different clothing, they have different rituals that they used to do, but their actual thinking process is different than ours. And when you don't understand that and you come in with with a different understanding an expectation as an American or as someone who's westernized, 
then you have a hard time understanding why people do what they do, and it could even embitter you or make you frustrated with the people. And did how long did it take for you to become adjusted to that way of thinking, that you could understand that? Well, uh, for me, I was kind of just thrown into the mix. I, As soon as I landed on the field, I was living communally with these guys from South Sudan. And I, I think a lot of people... They, they arrive in a team setting. They have other people with them who are Americans. A lot of people go over with a spouse. Uh, so for me, I was living with these guys 24-7. So I got to see pretty quickly mm, okay. <laughs> that there's there's a really big difference. And not that, it, not that our way of thinking is better, not at all. And that's another problem. Like the tendency of Americans so many times is to think, I'm going to go over and I'm going to fix these people. I'm going to save these people. I'm going to help these people. When the reality is we're people are people and and we really have nothing to offer them and we don't want to Americanize them. We want to empower them to, to be Ugandans who understand their worth and value and have hope. Now, you also mentioned in your bio regarding your own loneliness and burnout. And is that something that you deal with in your book? Yes. Yes, it is. Um, loneliness is a real a, a battle that I've, I've faced a lot on the mission field, especially, as I said, coming over as a single person and also with no teammates who really spoke my language or understood my, my culture or my way of thinking. Sometimes you just feel like an alien and you're on another planet and no one understands you or you might think, well... Everyone has an ulterior motive. They don't want to be my friends. They just want something from me. And so it's it's really hard to try to f- find out who the, the really genuine people are, who likes you for you, uh, who wants to be, you know, your friend. And also the whole time you're trying to adjust because, like I said, you're not going in trying to make them American, but you're trying to relate to them on the level that they can understand. So constantly trying to readjust yourself and to do things in a way that's not culturally offensive to them, a way that they'll understand. It's taxing and it can be very tiring. Do you have any me time? You know, I've I, when I first went to the field, I, I didn't. And I got sick a lot the first year and exhausted. I, I think I was a zombie for a lot of the time because I I just felt like there was so much brokenness around me, so many hurting, hopeless, dying people that it would be selfish for me to take time for myself. But the more I stay there, the more I've realized how ineffective I am if I don't. And so I try once a week to take a day where I just breathe, you know, or do something fun. I, you know, I don't have a television, but I do have my laptop so I can you know, bring a a DVD over and I do bring some DVDs with me and I can just watch a silly movie, even a cartoon. It doesn't matter. Just something to decompress. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And do you do you ever go travel anywhere from there by yourself, like for fun or? Yeah, I have before. Um, Our missions organization now, see, in hindsight, we're we're still learning. We've I formed an organization in um, 2011 after being out there for a few years. And so we're requiring missionaries now to take a few days every six weeks. 
Excellent. Yeah. You just go away. It doesn't matter where, but you just disconnect, you unwind and you just breathe a little bit. Has any of your family ever come to visit you there? Actually, they have. My parents um, have been out there twice. And uh, they're coming again in, in August. I'm actually getting married in August. And no way. Out. Yeah. And where did you meet your fiancé? I met him at a church in Kampala, which is the city, the capital city of Uganda. Um, he's a Ugandan man, but he's he's not from the culture up north. He's, he's very uh, educated, very experienced. He's been to different uh, countries and stuff, and he's just a really neat guy. And what does he do? He's by trade. He's a businessman. He does IT and networking in in the city, and he's traveled to different countries doing that. Uh, he also enjoys being a part of the ministry. He volunteers for the ministry, and so he's moved up up north. He's staying at the orphanage right now, and um, he helps out with with the ministry. He helps out. He does soccer. He plays soccer, and he like likes to reach out to the young men and try to do trade training with them, and and just be a good example. So will you still be will you be living then in the same place you are now or will that be changing for you? Uh we'll be living in in the same place. And that's in the in the camp situation, is that what you mean? Well, we'll be uh the rest of the actually that's not true. The rest of the team is going to be moving outside. Uh and we're going to be living at the headquarters until we can get our own little place. Well, that's exciting. There'll be many many changes. Yeah, yeah, and they'll, you'll, will. You'll, no, they'll give you great support, too, to have around you. And um, you'll be spending the rest of your life there, that's for sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure yeah. that's the way you're looking at it, correct? That is, and that's very okay with me. I, yes. I love it there. Yeah, <laughs> that's wonderful. No wonder you're excited about getting back as well. <laughs> yeah, that too. That's, that's an added bonus. <laughs> exactly. Well, Erica, this has been really enlightening um, just to hear of a single woman missionary with a mission and with a heart and a passion that you followed that even as a little girl. I mean, I commend you highly and I don't think I could do it, but it, we need people like you. And, and then also to have the heart, the heart of compassion and the heart for these people who are now your family you know, in many ways, I'm sure, and to help them, to encourage them, to teach them, to direct them, to to fulfill the needs that they have. I mean, your mission is non-stopping, obviously, for as long as you remain there. And I thank you for sharing that today. I hope that uh, you will be able to, when your next time come home, that you'll be able to reconnect and we can hear some more of what's happened in this last the last year or however long that you are there. Thank you. And if you've written any more, uh, your book is entitled, let me see if I got this right again, um, For the Joy That is Set Before Us, Insights into the Missionary Journey. And that is available on Amazon? That's correct. Okay. It'll also be in the show notes. And I look forward to seeing you again. And and I hope that you can stay in touch. And our listeners, I'm sure, will want to connect with you. Are you on Facebook? Yes. I'm on Facebook and Twitter, both. Okay. Perfect. So we can connect there. It makes the world much smaller, doesn't it? It does. I love it. (laughs) Send us some wedding pictures and we'll post it on your site. Oh, I will. Thank you so much, Carol. Thank you, Erica. And God bless you. 
God bless you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.